If you brought your Bible, take it and go to Matthew chapter 7 and Romans chapter 2, okay? We're going to flip back and forth between those two passages in just a few minutes. Uh, have you gone home and watched any of these war movies? Uh, I, I found myself, I, I got back into Saving Private Ryan, uh, Glory, and we were, that was we, from We Were Soldiers. Uh, Battle Ready is a series of messages that we designed several weeks ago and began several weeks ago to get you to think about what you're thinking, to, to, to shine a light on the importance of your thought life. I've asked you that question multiple times. How much thought do you give about what you think? How much thought do you give about what happens up here? Because as we've learned, what happens up here, it either causes or definitely affects and influences what goes on out here. I mean, ask yourself, why do marriages continue to suffer? Why do couples fight about the same things over and over and over again without any sort of resolution? Why is that? Um, why do people allow themselves to get into a, a place of hopelessness and helplessness? Uh, why can you see someone else's solution, but they can't see to, seem to see it themselves? Well, you might say, well, that's just life, Mike. That's just the way things are. The purpose of Battle Ready is to show you that it all begins in your mind. It all begins with your thought life. Uh, we've learned several things. For instance, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7 teaches, as we think, so we are. As we think, so we are. Again, what happens up here very often manifests itself out there. If you're constantly thinking, you've got one of those cluttered minds, and it's just repetitive thought after repetitive thought. Um, I need to lose weight. Oh, I need to get healthy. Uh, my husband doesn't love me anymore, or we fail to communicate, or we don't save enough money, or I need to do better with money. It isn't long before these thoughts become real-life struggles because the Bible makes it very clear, as we think first, so we are becoming second. Uh, we've also stressed that you cannot live a positive life with a negative mind. It's impossible. Those two ideas are incongruent. You cannot be successful out there if you're defeated up here. It just can't. That's why we've taken every week and we focused on some kind of thought pattern that the Bible discourages, uh, like the worried mind that Jonathan touched on last week, did a great job. The confused mind, uh, the doubtful mind, the unbelievable, unbelieving mind. You cannot be successful out there if you're already defeated here. You can't live a positive life with a negative mind. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but people who believe themselves to be healthy are healthier on average than people who don't. In other words, people who believe themselves to be healthy without ever going to a doctor are generally healthier than people who worry about their health all the time. Here's one that'll blow you away. If you exercise only twice a week, but you do so joyfully, you are, generally speaking, in better health than someone who exercises four times a week but does so dutifully. That's the power of your mind. That's the power of what's happening up here. Uh, the goal from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that we have the mind of Christ. Because as a follower of Jesus, God's spirit is in me, then I have the mind of Christ. I need to learn how to live like it. Today we're going to examine a very, very powerful and damaging thought pattern that we're going to call the judgmental mind. Now, I think everybody can relate to this on some level because all of us make judgments. All of us pass judgments on people, circumstances, events, things. Some are more, pr more prone to a judgmental, critical mind than others. Listen, nothing can sour a good marriage like a judgmental, suspicious, critical spirit or mind. Nothing can ruin or break a friendship 
like a judgmental mind. Nothing can limit your potential in the workplace like a judgmental mind. Do you know why? It's very simple. Nobody wants to be around a judgmental person. Nobody wants to spend time with somebody who has an opinion on everything. I don't. I don't want to watch a movie with someone who spends that two hours criticizing what they see on the screen. Do you? I don't want to spend time with someone who feels like somebody elected them the world's cop and it's their, it's their job to point out everything that's out of bounds or the faults of others. Now, I'm sure you know this lady. You recognize this lady? Judge Judith Scheinland. We know her as Judge Judy, right? Okay, uh, one of my wife's favorite shows, and, and I get into it sometimes too. Judge Judy is worth an estimated $50 million. Now, she didn't start out rich or come from money. She started out in family court in the state of New York, and now she's worth $50 million. Every week, more than 10 million people tune into her 30-minute show. You know what it is. It's a, it's a reality show. It's a courtroom setting. Uh, and people, real, real men and women, they come to her courtroom in front of a national TV audience, and, she, uh, and they're searching for closure. They want some resolution. She is by far the most popular judge on television. Now, ask yourself a question. Why is a show like that so popular? I'll tell you why I think. I think it's because there's something in all of us that wants to be judge. There's something in all of us that wants to sit in our judgment-free living rooms with our judgment-free remote and bring the hammer down on other people who we might criticize as idiots or irresponsible or ignorant. It's funny. It's really ironic. We hate being judged, but we love judging others, don't we? We hate someone to point out our mistake, our flaw, especially the older we get, but we love to point out others. Now, when the Bible, especially the New Testament, speaks of judgment, it uses one of two Greek words, and it could be defined as this. Judgment in the New Testament is a decision that's passed on the faults of others. Now, notice I've highlighted the word faults. Judgment when Jesus talks about it, or James talks about it, or Paul talks about it, or any one of the other biblical authors talks about it, is about passing judgment or making a decision on the faults of others. Not to judge their success, not to applaud their victory, but to pass judgment, make a decision on their faults. So get, keep that in mind when you think about it. One of two Greek words in the New Testament are translated judgment almost every time. One of them speaks of condemnation. When we judge, we condemn someone or something. James, the half-brother of Jesus in his epistle, chapter 3, he said, your tongue is like a fire. It's a world of evil. And believe me, it is when we judge one another. The other Greek word is connected to pride. Pride. I judge because I favor me over you. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins that God hates. So why in the world do we do it so often? Why does it come so easily and naturally to some of us? Why do we judge? Well, here's why. I'll put it on the screen. We judge because we are least aware of those things that are most constant and most aware of those things that are least constant. Now, hang on, because we've talked about this before. Let this sink in for a minute. Why do we judge, Mike? We judge because we, it's part of our psyche. It's part of our being, we are least aware of what is most constant and most aware of what is least constant. Let me illustrate. If you're sitting here today and your chair's comfortable 
and the temperature's perfect and you feel good, I'm willing to bet you $1,000 you've not turned to your neighbor and said, man, ain't it perfect in here? Isn't the temperature just perfect? Isn't this a comfortable chair? See, you are least aware of something that is most constant. But what if you're cold? If you're cold or if you're hot or if your back hurts, I'm willing to bet you, you have turned to your neighbor and said, man, somebody needs to adjust that thermostat. They're hanging meat in here, right? See, we are least aware of things that are most constant and most aware of things that are least constant. Now, turn it to judging others. We are least aware of areas in our lives that someone else might consider out of bounds because they're most constant with us. They're with us always. We are least aware of what someone else might see in our life and say, hey, that's out of bounds because to us, it's most constant. It's always with us. Conversely, we are most aware of others whose lives are different because that's least constant to us that we deem irresponsible or shameful. You see how it works? The reason I judge you and overlook me is because I'm least aware of the things that I live with, most constant. And I'm most aware of, uh, of the things that are least constant to me. That's because you're different and that's why I judge you. Look, it is very easy to judge someone whose behavior is immoral, ignorant, irresponsible without even considering that that person didn't have a father like yours or that person didn't have a mother like yours or that person didn't come up in a home like yours or that person's experience isn't anything like yours. You see, to you, yours is most constant, but when you look at them, theirs is least and that's why you're most aware of it. Look, the older I get, the more I thank God for my parents. See, I love my mom and dad, especially the older I get, the more I appreciate the way they raised me. Not everyone had a mom and a dad like I had. Not everyone was raised like I was raised. Now, listen very carefully. Don't think I'm being vain here. Doesn't make me better. Makes me different. It defines my most constant. It, it establishes the parameters by which I view the world. I see it in my office all the time. If someone is in my office and they continue to make poor choices and I'm cheering for them, man, I'm trying to guide them, I'm trying to encourage them, I'm trying to reprove and correct them. But as I begin to peel back the layers, guess what? I found out they had an irresponsible parent. Guess what? This kind of abuse happened in their family when they were children. Guess what? If they're not good with money, nobody ever sat them down and taught them how to lay out a budget. If they're irresponsible, if they're negligent, if they're ignorant, they don't know any better. You can see this in our minority community in the United States of America. Single parent homes are generational problems. A 12-year-old who's never had a father in the home doesn't know anything different. So what's going to stop that 12-year-old when she or he becomes a parent from doing the same? We are least conscious, cons, conscious and aware of the things that are most constant and most aware of the things that are least. Uh, here's how judgment works. Judgment uses the tool of confirmation bias. The sharpest tool in judgment's tool chest is confirmation bias. You know what this is? Again, we've talked about this before. Uh, as soon as I decide as a wife that my husband is lazy, my mind makes a note. He's lazy. That becomes my bias. And psychologically, I begin to notice every act of laziness on his part. 
while overlooking every act of responsibility or go get or whatever that would uh, belie my bias. It's part of what I know and how I see the world and the people around me. As soon as I decide that another race or another sex or another political party is irresponsible or ignorant or uneducated or undisciplined, my mind makes a note. And then every time I witness an action that is consistent with my bias, my bias is confirmed. That's how judgment works. Listen, you news hounds, CNN and Fox News do this all the time. CNN will show you every white conservative, every educated American who's a racist. They'll put him out there. They'll put him out there. Here, look at this behavior. Look at the kind, look at the, look at, listen to what the president said and look at that, And people come away with the idea, well, that just confirms my bias. That's why some people don't want to watch CNN. And then Fox gets in on every liberal, crazy college professor that does the dumbest, stupidest thing out west. Fox News is going to stick it up on the TV and tell you all about it. Why? They're confirming your bias. You've already decided that Republicans are this way or Democrats are that way, that conservatives are uptight and, and, and fascist and liberals are ignorant. You've already made that decision. Your mind has already made a note. Now, they're going to feed that by confirming that bias. Now, here's judgment's little secret. I'm harder on others than I'll ever be on myself. And surely you're genuine enough to admit this. Most of us, if we're honest, will say, I hold other people to a higher standard than I even hold myself. Most people, if they're honest, will tell you, I'm harder on others than I am myself. It's always easier to point out the flaws in someone else than it'll ever be to recognize my own. It's part of my psyche. Now listen, before we get into this, Matthew 7 and Romans chapter 2, if you have your Bible, I want to clarify the parameters of of our subject in our discussion today. A critical, judgmental mind is your enemy. A critical, suspicious, judgmental mind will cripple your faith walk. But today I'm not talking about conviction. I'm not talking about spiritual purity. Listen, sexual failure is always wrong. Homosexuality is a sin before God. Drinking or drugs to excess is clearly out of bounds. I should be able in a free country to point out that having a baby at 15 and being raised on food stamps and entering into a very likely life of poverty to the third and fourth generation is clearly a failure of some sort. I should be able to do that, but this is not our discussion today. Jesus never tells us to be ignorant. Jesus never tells us or instructs us to ignore sin. Today, we're talking about a thought pattern that's prone to pointing out and making judgments on people in general, their opinions, their preferences, their culture, their upbringing. We are instructed in this book very clearly to be very careful about considering our opinions and our personal standards as being shared by God. You see, the kind of judgment Jesus is about to deal with in Matthew 7 is the kind of judgment that says, you are a sinner, I'm not. And if you're not willing to go there, it's the same kind of judgment that says, your sin is worse than my sin. Remember that. That is the subject 
today. Look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Matthew 7 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jonathan alluded to this last time. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are one sermon that Jesus delivered. Now, whenever you're reading your Bible and the words are read and they're the words of Jesus, you need to understand, if you're a little confused, especially about what's being communicated, that Jesus primarily had two uh, audiences, okay? Two audiences. If you're reading the words of Jesus and you're scratching your head saying, I just don't understand what he's getting at, maybe that's because someone like you wouldn't be his target audience. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is primarily speaking to the Pharisees. Whenever Jesus spoke or taught, he was either speaking to his closest followers, like he was last week in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and following, or he's directing his comments toward the religious elite of the day. We would call them hypocrites, the Pharisees of the day. This is the case in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, first and foremost, primarily, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Do not judge, Pharisees. Don't judge all these common people or you too will be judged. Remember that. Jesus was not offering the kind of kingdom the Pharisees wanted. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah or Savior the Pharisees were expecting. Jesus did not celebrate a kind of righteousness the Pharisees valued. Jesus is saying, be very, very careful. We do the same thing whenever we hold someone else up to our standard and not God's. Verse 2. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now stop for a minute. This is not a condemnation against making judgments. We call that discernment. As a parent, you've got to teach your child, this is good, that's bad, this is out of bounds, avoid that. This is responsible, that's irresponsible. That's not what Jesus is describing. That kind of judgment is both necessary and beneficial. What this is, is a warning against making judgments on others when our own lives go unexamined. That was the problem the Pharisees had. The Pharisees were quick to point the finger at the common man, claiming we are righteous and you are not. And Jesus is saying, look, don't judge someone else unless you first examine yourself. We'll see that very clearly uh, from verse 5 in just a moment. When you judge others according to God's standard, listen very carefully, God's going to judge you according to his. And you'll lose that battle every time. Okay? Understand this going in about Matthew chapter 7. I am a sinner before God and so are you. The idea that I would point your failure out and hold it up against mine as somehow greater or worse or darker is irresponsible unproductive and downright dangerous according to Jesus. Because what Jesus is trying to communicate to the Pharisees primarily is that we're all sinners. Pharisees, churchgoers, religious people, you're not nearly as righteous as you think you are. If you're going to judge others based on your standard and claim it's God's, guess what? God's going to judge you by his and you're going to come up short every time. Now, take your Bible and turn over to Romans chapter 2. Paul repeats this very idea and it could not be more clear. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it together. You, therefore, he's talking to believers in Rome, followers of Christ. You, therefore, have no excuse. You've got no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, 
For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Watch this. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. When the Bible uses the word same, the Greek word can mean two things. Same, exactly, or same but different. Paul is using same but different. When you pass judgment on someone else, you fail to realize you're guilty of the same but different sins. See, when I judge that 15-year-old girl who's standing in the line in front of me at the grocery store with her single mother and about four other kids, and they pull out their peach card to pay for their groceries, meanwhile, they're buying Frosted Flakes while I'm buying IGA brand, or they're, you understand, or they're buying Eggo waffles while I'm buying Great Value brand to save money. As soon as I judge their failure, their moral failure, I fail to realize that God could judge mine because I have equal, it's just different. You see, that's what Paul's saying. He goes on. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Now such things is defined for us in Romans chapter one. And believe me, they are dark and homosexuality is one of them. God's judgment on the world will be based on truth. Most of us can accept that. Watch what he says next. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same but different things. So you will, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Okay, back to Matthew chapter seven. Paul repeats almost verbatim the passage Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter seven. The sins God will judge in truth are equally but different than the sins that are evident and present in my life. See, when I judge my neighbor, I invite the judgment of God upon me. Here we go. Verse 3 of Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, notice the hyperbole here. Okay? There are two people. One of them's got a little speck of sawdust. You ever, you ever get a gnat in your eye? I mean, this happens on the golf course to me sometimes. You're driving along in a little golf cart, and Bam! And you think, honestly, you think someone has like thrown a rock in your eye or something. It feels this big, turns out to be a tiny little gnat. Jesus says, why do you look or point out the speck in your neighbor's eye? Remember, that's least aware to you. You're most conscious of it because it's not part of your life. Meanwhile, you're ignoring this plank, this beam that's sticking out of your head. Jesus uses the hyperbole here, I believe, to demonstrate the danger the danger of being willing to sacrifice God's grace for his judgment. And that's what we do when we judge others. We say, God, I don't need your grace because my behavior is so much better than theirs. And in doing so, we give up his grace and we accept his judgment. Verse three, in your own eye. Uh, matter of fact, I tell you what, you don't have to turn there. Let me throw another passage from Romans, this time chapter 12 and verse three. Paul is again the author. Paul writes, I am speaking to you out of a deep gratitude for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Watch this. Living then as every one of you does in pure grace. See, existing as every one of you does, whether your sin is a beam or a speck, you're covered by his grace. Living as every one of you does in pure grace, it's important that you not or misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. Watch this. The only accurate way 
to understand yourself is by what God is and by what God does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. Wow, man, I could spend an hour on that one passage. Did you see all that? Paul is saying, look, the only accurate way to understand yourself, to interpret your place in reality is not based on you at all. It's based on who God is and what God's done for you. When we judge others, it's about who we are and what we do for God. Think about that when it comes to judging another race or think about that when it comes to judging the other sex. The only way to understand ourselves, myself as a white educated male, the only way to understand myself is by what God has done for me and who God is, not who I am and what I have done for God. All right, back to Matthew chapter seven. Let's finish up this passage. Look at verse four. Jesus now says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Again, this is an example of hyperbole. We've got a, a little speck or a flake of sawdust versus a giant beam only to identify the danger in judging one another. That's why Jesus is using such big language. How in the world can you say, let me take that out of your eye without realizing what you've got in you? How, how can we say to someone, shame, for you, shame on you for having a baby out of wedlock? How can we say to someone, shame on you for living on welfare? How can we say to someone, shame on you for dropping out of college not a, or school and not applying yourself? How can we say to someone, shame on you for losing that job, for being irresponsible? Listen to me, that all may be true. That all may be true. But it's not my call to make. It's not your call to make. Keep reading. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, remember, we usually recognize this practice when it comes to other people. We just rarely see it in ourselves. Think about this for a second. How would you react if you were out to dinner and one of your children were acting up and someone walked up to your table and said, let me tell you how to parent. Let me tell you what you need to do to fix your kid. How would you, would any of you appreciate that? Heck no. You'd say, let me tell you about your parenting. You go sit down, Right? And yet, how many times have we thought, sitting in a restaurant with our three well-behaved children, and they're respectful, and there are no electronic devices at the table, and they're listening, and they're speaking when asked a question, and they're respectful to the hostess and the greeter, and, the, and, the per and here comes that single mom in dragging three kids behind her. Here she comes. And one kid won't stay seated, and the other kid won't stop crying, and it's a big disruption in the restaurant. What goes through your mind? Somebody ought to go over there and tell her how to parent, Right? See, we see this in other people, but we, ever, we rarely ever recognize it in, our, in ourselves. Look at verse 5. You're a hypocrite, man. Don't be a hypocrite. First, watch this. Careful, this is very important. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Stop. Let me explain this. This is huge. First, examine yourself. First, realize that you have nothing good to offer God. First, realize that the only way to understand yourself is by who God is and what God has done for you, not who you are and what you do for God. First, do that. Then, and only then, might you address someone else's problem. 
So there is a time to offer a suggestion. There is a time to make an opinion known or voice it, but only after meeting two criteria. Number one, you've examined yourself. Am I truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Are my sins truly covered by Christ's blood on the cross? Because listen, my good behavior didn't die on a cross on a Friday and raise again from the dead on a Sunday. My good behavior didn't do it. My upbringing didn't do that. My skin tone didn't do that. My ethnicity, my education didn't do that. Jesus Christ did that. Number one, examine yourself. Number two, then and only then, get involved with someone else. Are you willing to get involved? See, here's what I see. I see a lot of people quick to judge, but they never get involved. Quick to point out someone else's flaws, but never get involved to the point that they're willing to get their hands dirty and try to help someone. Now look at verse six, and he sums it all up. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, a lot of people misunderstood this verse, but in light of the context, it's very simple. Dogs and pigs were considered unclean in this culture. A first century dog was a varmint. They didn't live in people's houses. We didn't bathe them and put collars on them, okay? They were wild. They were scavengers. They ran through the town. Pigs by Jews were considered unclean animals. So Jesus is saying, look, don't give good advice after bad intention. Keep reading. Because if you do, they may trample them under their feet, meaning the pig doesn't appreciate the pearls, or they might turn and tear you to pieces, meaning the dog might turn on you. Here's what Jesus is saying. Dogs and pigs being considered unclean, Jesus says, don't throw good advice after bad intention. Jesus says, restrain that assistance, even if you have examined your life and you're willing to get involved, if it's going to be ignored and disrespected. See, I run into this a lot, to be quite honest with you. There are a whole lot of people who call this church, a whole lot of people who attend this church. Pastor Mike, listen, we really need some help. But when you sit down and I first examine my heart, examine my life, and then I decide to get involved, very quickly I realize they don't want help. They want to be bailed out. They don't want assistance. They don't want to learn. They don't want to change. They want somebody to fix it with money or fix it with time. That's what Jesus is teaching in verse 6. Here's the big statement. I put it in the program. Please get this. If you make judgments against someone else according to your standard, then God is going to judge you by his. If you make judgments against someone else according to your standard, prepare yourself. God's going to judge you by his. You see, in reality, when I judge someone else, I set myself up as God in their life. I'm like this little God in, in your life or their life or that couple's life or, or that person's situation. And I'm a pretty bold guy and I'm willing to step out there a lot and I'm willing to risk some things. That's a line I do not want to cross. I don't want God to think that I'm trying to take his place, but that's exactly what we do when we judge others. Imagine a world for a moment where people really, truly loved one another. Just imagine that for a moment. Now, maybe that's way too much to ask. Maybe that's incredibly unrealistic. So let's just imagine our church. Let's imagine a church where people truly loved each other. I mean, what if everybody here today were first willing to examine themselves, were first willing to interpret their reality based not upon who they are, what they do for God, but upon who God is and what he does for us, and then were willing to get involved and assist someone else in theirs. Wow, that'd be a, that'd be a community-changing, life-changing church. We couldn't keep the people out of here. Listen to Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 from the Amplified Bible. 
Paul writes, love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best in every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. You think about that definition next time you casually say or end a text, hey, love you, man. Hey, love y'all. You think about that definition. The book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 23, Solomon wrote, a wise man's heart guides his mouth. Now, we would say a wise man's mind guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Now, look, you compare that to all the hate-filled speech out there on Twitter and the Internet. You compare that to all the hate-filled speech that comes from liberals and conservatives alike. You compare that to what we know in our culture. God, give us homes. God, give us churches. God, give us communities filled with pleasant words coming from wise minds. And God, help us if we turn on one another in judgment. Let's pray. Father, I don't want to look down on anybody. And yet in me, there is a spirit of judgment. There is a critical nature that wants to point out differences and flaws and failures. Father, I praise you that that's not how you respond to me. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He shed blood on the cross that covers my transgressions, that absorbs my failure, that lightens my and brightens my darkened heart. Father, teach us that all the good in us is only a reflection of your grace. All the modified behavior, the, the, the good intention, the, the, the quality reputation that we have to offer anyone or anything is only because of your mercy. And may we offer others around us the freedom to live, the freedom to fail, the freedom to get up and try again in love. We pray these things because of our faith in you, Father, with respect to your son. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Go make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time.